Good morning, everyone. Uh, just to want to re-emphasize, not that Tom did an inadequate job, you did a fantastic job, but the family meeting next week, it's only one week uh, notice, so I wanted to make sure you were clear that uh, it is next weekend during the first hour, next Sunday, and we really would invite anyone who is a member, regular attender, just beginning to make Melanie Park your church home. We only do these once or twice a year. And when we do, we really try to make sure that what we are communicating is significant in the life and ministry of our church family. So we would just encourage everyone to come. Uh, we'll just turn the sanctuary into a living room. It's very informal. And we just want to just have some time with our church family and share some things that are happening that we think are important uh, to you and to the, our church family. So would encourage you to make time for that. Well, last week, Matt Wade caught me in the foyer, and he asked me, or made a really good observation. He said, you know, the more we spend time in Ecclesiastes, the more I'm convinced it's one of the best books in the Bible for evangelism, because it really speaks to unbelievers, and I think that's true. In fact, Tom Cady told me, his brother, who wasn't a believer at the time, read through the entire Bible, book by book. And when he was done, he said out of everything that he read, the book of Ecclesiastes was the one that he could relate to most. I believe that's because the book of Ecclesiastes explores all the possible outcomes of pursuing a life without God. It's a story of someone trying to find meaning in, pur in purpose through worldly pursuits, as we've seen through the life of Solomon, it leads to a lot of dead ends, right? I don't know about you, but it's like, oh my gosh, here we go again. This is another dead end. But all those paths, at least in the beginning, seem to have promise. It's just that they end in disappointment. It's kind of like that mirage in the desert, right? It looks like a cold, refreshing drink of water, but when you get closer, you realize, nope, just another dry patch of desert sand. That's all it is. Well, Solomon is writing about his own failures in all these worldly pursuits in hopes that it'll lead you to something better. I mean, why in the world would you want to repeat his same mistakes? if you could learn from his example. Solomon wants you to look beyond yourself, and as we said last week, to consider the work of God. He wants you to see that a life without God is a life without meaning. It's a life without purpose. It's a life of futility. But as I thought about it, I also believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is equally as valuable to those of us who do believe in God, to those who follow Christ. It reminds us of the futility from which we have been rescued, and it points us to, to live a life that is filled with purpose and meaning. Because Solomon understands that even though that's true, like we just sang about, we are all prone to wonder. We are prone to settle for lesser things. We are prone to, to drink from broken cisterns when we have available to us the fountain of living water. I think in some ways, Solomon's experience might sound like some of our own, where some days we are relying on our own strength and understanding, and then there are times where we 
Rest in the Lord. There are some days that we are pursuing selfish desires and other days when we were really leaning in on the Lord. Either way, the message of Ecclesiastes is the same. Life with God is so much better than living for yourself. And that's true. (laughs) That speaks to an unbeliever as well as a believer because we all need to be reminded of that truth. Ecclesiastes in in the long run is ultimately a contrast, a contrast between the goodness of God and his desires and the sinfulness of man and our desires. In fact, turn, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 29. We're going to put into practice some of what we talked about last week, and we're going to begin with the end in mind. So this is the last verses of our passage, but I want us to begin here. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out their own devices. In other words, God is inherently good, and we are inherently sinful. We go our own way. We rely, we choose, we seek our own devices. God desires what is best, and very often we settle for something less. Until we understand our own depravity, our prone-to-wonder hearts, we will not fully appreciate the goodness of God. See, only when we're honest about our sin will God lead us to something better. Because listen, as long as we think we're doing just fine on our own, then the truth of the matter is we don't need God. And we'll live like that. And so Solomon is trying to lead us to something better. And so let's just pray together that we get a clear understanding of what that looks like from our passage this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we want to be honest. With you, we want to be honest with ourselves We want to be honest with each other that we are prone to wonder. We are inclined to settle for lesser things. But you alone are good and right and true. And our hearts are only satisfied in you. And so, Lord, I would just ask that through your word this morning, through the power of your spirit speaking into our hearts, that we might catch a vision and an understanding of what it means to trust in you more deeply to walk with you more faithfully and to see that when we settle for lesser things, it is so far more disturbing to our soul than the goodness that you intend. And help us to grab hold firmly of the promises of your word. That's our prayer this morning, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So let's go back up to chapter 7, verse 15, where we left off last, chapter 7, verse 15. As Solomon continues on, and he says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Now I want to pause there because we see here again, Solomon is reflecting on what he's calling his lifetime of Now, I believe he's describing those collective efforts to find answers apart from faith in God, trying to be satisfied with all those dead ends, those worldly desires. 
which, as he says, is an exercise in futility. And when that becomes the common experience of all mankind, what you have is a world that is filled with oppression, that is filled with injustice. It was true during the time of Solomon. It's just as true in our world today. Things like the righteous who perish for doing good and the wicked who prosper from doing evil. Now, does that happen in our world today? All the time. And if you have doubts, let me encourage you to take some time and go down to Huachochi, Mexico, and spend some time with Jerry Adair. And you can see firsthand the struggle of those who are trying to do the right thing in a world that is controlled by evil people. It is controlled by drug lords. And they know firsthand what it's like for a child to grow up and then be forced to work for these drug cartels with the threat if they are unwilling They'll murder their entire family. And they will, and they have. It's where the righteous perish and the evil prosper. And that's just one place in the world. But let me tell you, it's all over the place in the world. The selfish pursuit of worldly desires leads to a world that is filled with futility. That's Solomon's point. And it was true in his day, and it's just as true now in ours. Look at how he continues in verse 16. He says, Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with them both. Now, at first glance, when you read that passage, it seems, well, gosh, he just kind of seems to be promoting this idea of mediocrity, right? (laughs) Don't be too religious and don't be too evil. Just kind of find some middle ground somewhere in between. But we know that's not true because of what he says there in verse 18. See, here's what he's trying to teach us. Someone who is overly righteous is someone who depends on their own strength to accomplish their own righteousness. Solomon is saying, essentially, don't be self-righteous. Don't have the attitude that God owes you for your good behavior. And then become bitter when something goes wrong. This reminds me of Job's friends. When his life was falling apart, One of those friends came to him and he said, you know, Job, God doesn't reject a man who is blameless. The implication being, hey, buddy, ultimately this is all your fault because good things just don't happen to bad people. That's not how the formula works. But that's the opinion of the self-righteous. Believing that good behavior results in God's blessing. But Solomon just said, You just look around the world and you can see that's not true because there are righteous people who perish and there are evil people who prosper. So no, it's not a formula. But the works-oriented righteousness believes that it should be. It believes that God owes you for your good behavior. So Solomon says you should avoid that extreme because that extreme is not true. But the other extreme is just as bad. He says, don't be foolish and believe that there's no consequence for your sin. 
We cannot avoid the consequences of our sinful choices. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says this. If sin, if you sin against the Lord, you can be sure, okay? And when the Bible uses that phrase in the original language, is it, you can put your life on it. You can stake everything you own on it. This is an absolute truth. So it says, if you sin against the Lord, you can be sure your sin will find you out. God's not turning a blind eye to injustice and to sin in the world. He takes it all into account. Which is why I believe what is happening in our culture will not go without a reckoning. The compromises that we are making in our culture with the sanctity of life, the increasing moral decay, the rejection, the rebellion against the authority of God will not go unpunished. There will be a reckoning. Why? Because the Bible says, if you sin against the Lord, you can be sure your sin will find you out. That's true individually. That's true corporately. That's true nationally. That's why Solomon says in verse 18, it's good to grasp one thing and not let go of the other. In other words, we must realize that we can never, ever be good enough to earn God's favor. Nor can we be so sinful that we are beyond His reach. It's good to hold one thing and not let go of the other. Those who fear God understand they are born sinful, but made righteous. Don't let go of one as you hold on to the other. We are born sinful, but made righteous. They understand God's justice and that righteous judgment of our sin, but at the same time, they depend on His grace and mercy because that's the only chance we have. Look at how it continues in verse 19. It says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. See, a wise man actually has a sober self-assessment. They recognize their sinful heart. They realize that no one is so righteous that they always do good and never make mistakes. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We must recognize our sin. We must turn our hearts to the Lord. Humble confession with willing trust. That's what Solomon is trying to point us towards. Look at how he continues in verse 19. Or excuse me, 21. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant saying to you, or servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. See, the other aspect of trusting God is not taking yourself too seriously. Solomon says it's wise not to find your identity in what other people say or your approval in what other people think. Because if you do, you are destined to be devastated by disappointment. You're going to be crushed by criticism. Especially when that comes from someone who's close to you, someone you love or care about. 
Remember last week we talked about how the wise are the ones who are willing to receive instruction, right? They, they have a teachable heart. But only, Solomon only said that because he realizes how much we so often reject the godly counsel of other people, how very unwilling we often are to listen to someone else, especially when it has to do with our own sinful issues in our heart. And so he's trying to tell us here, People are going to say careless things, and sometimes we'll be hurt by what other people say, even when we're trying to help those people in our efforts to reach out to them. But if your identity is built into what other people think of you, those situations will crush you. Solomon is quick to remind us as he continues on, but he says, but listen, remember... No one is immune to making the very same mistake. Pascal once said, if if all men knew what each other said about the other, there would be not more than four friends in the world. (laughs) We've all said things behind someone's back that we would never say to their face. Every person in this room. See, Solomon is making the point, look, the biggest hypocrites in the world are those who say they've never been a hypocrite. Because we all have. We live in a sin-cursed world, and sin causes people to say hurtful things, and very often the people who are hurting are the ones who end up hurting other people. So instead of being offended by what someone says, you might be able to stop for a minute and ask yourself, what is hurting them so bad that they would hurt someone else so easily? And maybe you turn your defensiveness into a sympathy a care, a concern. See, the wise man realizes that the only opinion that really matters at all is God's opinion. Because what he knows is way more important than what anyone else might think. What he says is infinitely more valuable than what other people might believe. So find your identity in the truth of God. And not in the opinions of other people. Look at how he continues in verse 23. He says, I tested all this wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom. And an explanation. And to know the evil of folly and the foolishness. Of madness. As you read those verses, I hope one of the things that stands out is all the personal pronouns. I, I tested, I said, I determined, I will be wise. So once again, Solomon is reflecting on his pursuit of finding answers apart from God. But what's interesting, if you stop and think about it, is that God is the one who gave him wisdom to begin with. But he's not turning to God as the source of his wisdom. He's turning to himself. I am going to find it. I'm going to discover it. I'm going to make this pursuit. I will be wise. You see, Solomon tried to leverage the gift and use it for selfish gain. 
Solomon isn't looking to God as a source of wisdom. He's using his gift as an excuse for sin. And we know that because there at the end of that verse, he says, I directed my mind to know the evil of folly and the stupidity of wickedness. In other words, Solomon thought he could play with sin and then use his wisdom to find a way out. And before we're too critical of Solomon, we need to realize how many times we're guilty of doing the very same thing. Oh, I know that others might struggle with that issue, but really, just really, it's not a problem for me. I mean, they let things get out of hand, but I've got things under control. I just don't struggle with that like other people do. And then, when our sin finds us out, as the Bible says, it always will, Like Solomon, we're often quick to blame other people. It's someone else's fault, not mine, right? Look at how he continues in verse 26. He says, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Solomon, having been caught in his sin, is pointing his finger at what he calls an evil woman. Maybe someone like Delilah, right, who promises to love but is only planning to destroy. But notice Solomon says, only the sinner is captured by this woman. Don't miss that. You see what he said? He said, only the sinner is captured by this woman. Well, guess who the sinner is in this particular scenario? It's Solomon. He's the sinner. Solomon is the sinner. God repeatedly instructed the Israelites, do not intermarry with other nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not take their sons with your daughters because they worship false gods. And when you compromise your own beliefs, you will inevitably follow them in their idolatry. So you may, have, you may remember this verse, but I want to remind you of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to what is written here, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon, get this, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidonite, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate with them. Uh, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives, as God promised, turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other, to other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. In the heart of David, as the, uh, the heart of David, his father had been. For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and uh, after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. 
Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. And for, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their idols. Solomon rejected God's instruction to pursue selfish desires. He thought he could play with sin and not get burned. But his compromise turned his heart from the Lord. And I want you to notice how his compromise corrupted his view of all women. He says that, he assumes that they're all evil. They have some kind of evil intent. They're out to snare him, to, to, to trap him. But that's only because he forfeited God's design to pursue selfish desires. God was clear from the very beginning that the marriage relationship was intended for one man and one woman for a lifetime, not one man and 700 women. That's total foolishness craziness. As is every redefinition of marriage that exists to this day. Solomon was asking for trouble, and so are we, over and over again. Look at verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out their own devices. Well, if that point hasn't been clear through our passage this morning, I don't know how else to explain it. God built goodness into his design, but we are inclined to go our own way. We all fall short. We've all been hypocrites. We are all prone to wonder. That's what theologians call the total depravity of man. That's what Paul described in Romans when he says, there is none who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God, no one who does good, not even one. As I say, said, all of us like sheep have, have gone astray. We are prone to wonder. See, until we recognize, admit our own depravity, we will not understand the goodness of God. We have to be honest about our sin in order for God to lead us to something better. We see this being portrayed from the very beginning. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what you're going to see is a creation filled with God's goodness. God spoke light into the darkness, and it was good. He created the earth and the sea, and it was good. He brought forth the, the plants and the trees and, and seeds and fruit, and it was good. He set the moon and the sun and the stars in place to, to govern the day and to govern the night, and, and it was good. He, he put fish in the sea and birds in the air and, and animals on land, and, and it was good. And then God created us, created man in his image, male and female. He created them, and it was very good. Everything God did from beginning to end was filled with his goodness. And if you go in chapter 2, you'll find that God lived in fellowship 
with His creation and they flourished under His care. But this was all a part of God's design. Understand, this was His original intent. And that fellowship with their Creator was essentially based on one single command. Don't miss this. One command in the Garden of Eden, and it is this. Trust me. Trust me. You can have everything that is created in this world, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in it, in that day, you will die. Trust me. And, and understand that when God gives that command, it has really less to do about the tree and more to do about the trust. Because the reality is, Adam and Eve flourished even in the absence of that tree. They were lacking for nothing. They were missing nothing. In fact, they were flourishing in everything completely fulfilled. Through their fellowship with God, every desire of their heart was met. Until the enemy came along and began to plant seeds of doubt. He convinced Adam and Eve, despite their experience, that God was withholding something good from them. And in that moment, they believed the lie of a stranger instead of trusting in the goodness of God. Now, I want us to fast forward to where you and I live today. We live in a world not unlike what Solomon has been describing, right? A world filled with injustice and oppression, a world that is infected with the, the curse of sin, and that sin has infected the heart of all mankind, including you and I. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that sin entered the world through one man. That's what happened in the garden with, with Adam. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. He's basically saying what Solomon has been preaching, that, that God is good, but man is inherently sinful. But I want you to listen how Paul goes on to describe in John, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. As he continues that thought, he says, For if by the transgression of one death reigned through the one, as we saw in verse 12, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Do you see the contrast here? He's contrasting Adam with Christ, the one who began the sin that infected the heart of all man and the one who came to do something about that sin in restoring the righteousness that we were intended to live with in relationship with God. It goes on to say in verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. You see the contrast again. Sin brings condemnation. Jesus brought forgiveness. So that he goes on in chapter 8 later and says, Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on in verse 19 and says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The many, including me and you, were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many 
were made righteous. Jesus came to restore the goodness of God's original design. And he did so by dying on the cross in order to forgive our sins, taking our condemnation in order to give us as a gift. That was repeated at least three times. Give us as a gift, something we don't earn, something that we simply receive, the gift of his righteousness. Only then can we live in that life-giving relationship that we were originally created to have. And guess what? He still only has one command. And it hasn't changed. Trust me. Trust me. God says, trust me in my promises. Trust me in my provision. Trust me in the goodness of my design. But you and I are well aware of the fact that we live in a world where the enemy still whispers his lies. And he's still trying to convince us that there's something beyond the boundaries of God's design that promises to be better. Something better. That God is withholding something good. So as we turn to communion this morning, I want it to be a reminder. <laughs> There's nothing better than life in Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ alone. I don't care what you hear that may be whispered in this world from an enemy who wants to distract you you need to be reminded this morning, there is nothing better than your life in Christ and faith in Him. And I want us to be assured as we go back to that example of Adam and Eve, they flourished under His care. And I want you to know that the same promise is being made to us to flourish under his care. Yes, we live in a sin-cursed world, and yes, there are a lot of ugly things going on around us, but there is a redeeming God who has the power to live within us, to restore us, and to heal us, and to make us new. So when you come to the table this morning, be reminded of that goodness, that Jesus came that you might have life, but it didn't stop there. It says something else, doesn't it? And that you might have it what? abundantly, beyond anything you can ask or imagine. That's the goodness of the God who sent his son to redeem our souls from the sin that has infected every single one of us. And so when we come to the table this morning, let's be reminded of the goodness of God. Let's be reminded of the work of Christ to restore that goodness so that we might live fulfilled in that life-giving relationship with our Creator. And just maybe for this moment, let Him pour goodness into your heart and be reminded of His forgiveness of sin. Amen? So as the men come forward, let me pray for our time. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to recognize, as Solomon has emphasized, how easy it is for us to wander. How easy it is to settle for lesser things. 
how easy it is to settle for broken cisterns that leak when we have a fountain of living water, when we have complete forgiveness of sin, when we have redemption and hope of a Savior who has come, who still lives, and who promises to restore and make us new. So I ask, Father, as we come to the table, that those things are made explicitly clear in our hearts and minds. We pray this in your name. Amen. sinful but made righteous and this is how I've said it before my two favorite words in the Bible are but God Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our sin made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved so I just want to encourage you as you take the bread this morning, you see the great love with which you've been loved. You recognize the Savior who came to set you free. Why would you want to go any other way if Jesus has made a way for you to live eternal in the relationship you were ultimately created for? And this is how that's possible. So take the bread and be thankful for the goodness of our God. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we can sing, we can say, we can proclaim with the psalmist who says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who heals, who forgives all our sins, who heals all our diseases, who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, who rescues our life from the pit, who satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. So when you take the cup this morning, I want you to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the way in which that truth is made possible because apart from him, none of those things are true. Because you'll just find that any effort to satisfy those in worldly pursuits is just another dead end. Solomon has made that explicitly clear, hasn't he? But he's doing that in order for you to see something better, something filled with goodness, something covered with love and grace and mercy. And what he's trying to show you is Jesus. Jesus is the way to the goodness of God. So when you drink of the cup, drink deeply of his forgiveness of grace through faith in Christ alone.
Father, as we pause for just a moment to come to your table, we are grateful that you knew us well enough that you knew we would need this reminder. You knew that we were prone to wonder and drink from broken cisterns, and we needed to drink from the cup of your forgiveness and grace and mercy and live according to that truth. And I pray that maybe this morning, through the things that we saw in your word and listened to uh, through uh, Solomon, that we might be drawn to a deeper understanding of what it means to find our fulfillment, not in worldly desires, not in the opinions of people, but through the truth of God, the power of your word, and the promise of the Savior who came to set us free. May we live accordingly because of your great grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all have a great day. Thanks, man.